0: hey guys for today's guest i have dennis doma or the continuous improver as he's called on linkedin love that handle uh we talked about quality and what it means for software and he lays out internal and external quality which to me made perfectly sense it was very interesting to listen to enjoy beyond coding welcome to beyond coding a dive into the world of successful people in it from your sponsors Zebia, creating digital leaders Here's your host, Patrick Akil. Hey, Dennis. Hi. Welcome. Thank you. How's it going?
1: Good. Nice yeah. to be here. It's yeah. an honor to be here, actually. Um, yeah, I'm
0: excited. That's awesome to yeah. hear. I love your LinkedIn tag. <laughs> it says, Dennis, the continuous improver. Why, why is that there?
1: on an everlasting quest for finding better <laughs> solutions to build you know yeah it's 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 funny it's actually triggered by a book it's called soft skills it's written by john somers an american uh, developer yeah and uh, obviously the book is about soft, soft skills and one of the things he said was that if you want to market yourself a bit better think about the niche or the the things that make you unique. I mean, everybody is unique in some sense, yeah. both in a good in a bad way. And I realized I like a lot of stuff. I'm I have a very broad interest. Yeah, I mean, I'm kind of a T-shaped person, so I care about architecture, obviously. I I care about quality of code, and we'll talk about that today, I guess. Uh, but I also care about like how do you get teams to work rather, uh, together? What tools do you need? Because Architecture these days is not just architecture it's not just about drawing layers and diagrams and defining abstractions it all ties together I mean Conway's law is a nice example of how your architecture is influenced by the physical organization of your teams. So for me it's I'm interested in everything. I, am, I go to well I, 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 occasionally I speak at conferences but I also visit conferences like in the US there's Qcon yeah and I typically go to like vastly different subjects. So I like to hear, like, how did GitHub actually scale the organization? Yeah. What did they do to keep people motivated? Or uh, how do you uh, ad- address the culture of the, of the people in the company? Um, but I'm also interested in tools, you know, build pipelines, and how can you make your things work better? How, how do you do project management yeah. with teams across? So it's so broad that I'm interested in. I mean, I have some f- things I really care about. Yeah. C-sharp, .NET, coding, uh, coding standards, that kind of stuff is my thing. A testability, but all the other things are part of that. Yeah. So I thought like, yeah, I'm not going to be the, um, the .NET guy to go to. I'm not exactly. going to be agile coach um, because my job is typically to go into a company and try to optimize the entire software development effort. Yeah. Everything from all beginning. of it. And that thought, like, okay, so what am I doing? Well, I'm always trying to learn. I'm 47 now, but I'm still trying to learn. Yeah. Continuous improver. Yeah, I mean, I I still don't like the ring of it. it really? Yeah, I love it. I have the feeling something is wrong in the uh, like a grammar, a grammar mistake or something. <laughs> but I've checked it a couple of times with the. It is speakers. accurate. Yeah.
0: yeah, I mean, uh, it's it's very valid.
1: So yeah, that that's that's me. Cool. Always trying to look for better ways to do my job and help my clients. Obviously. Yeah, yeah.
0: I think you and me are very similar in that okay, because cool. I, I love. Also, the wide range that comes with building software, uh, how an organization is structured, how to manage teams, efficiency, effectiveness, all that stuff. Uh, But I always thought it was initially a bad thing, like really early on in my career. I thought I need my niche, right? I need that depth in some of the aspects. So I'm glad to hear that you still have kind of the same broad interest, except you also have found your niches here and there. And that's the
1: thing. I mean, if you... Stay on this if you if you end up become very superficial, like yeah. you know a little bit about this, a little bit about that, then there's not a lot that makes you unique. Exactly. I mean there's plenty of people that can talk about a lot of topics on a superficial level. So you need to have like I have a lot of experience with event sourcing, domain driven design, that kind of stuff. Um I've been maintaining uh, like libraries for unit testing for the last ten years. That keeps me grounded to that technology. Yeah. So I mean, I, you don't see me going to Java, for instance.
0: Exactly. But I
1: do embrace TypeScript and a bit of JavaScript, you know, because it's it's cool and, and it's, well, cool is never a goal in itself, but <laughs> it enables you know things yeah. to be built in a reliable and maintainable way. So I care about that
0: as well. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. I mean, they're they're all adjacent, right? And you don't have to go all the way across the street. You can just go next door uh, and find common common things there, common ground.
1: True. Yeah. And, and you need to know the people. I mean, if you know that there's certain areas that you, at least you know how it works, what it's supposed to do, but you want to understand the nitty gritties, either I will dive into it myself because I've learned, at least I think I, I master new stuff pretty well. I can put it in perspective with everything I've done in the past, but it's also good to know the people that actually can help you bring further. Yeah, You know, freelancers, people in your own company, uh, somebody on the internet, Twitter for me is almost like better than Google. Really? If I want to get some opinions, I just put a tweet out. Yeah. And sometimes people just give me the answer back that I could also Google myself. Sure. But uh, um, <laughs> obviously uh, it's better if you get so like real experiences. People say like, okay, I've used this, it works for this and this reason, much more useful.
0: Yeah, it's, I mean, it's always a community. And I always say when someone's new in the team, like if you have any question... I'd rather you ask me than spend half a day trying to figure things out yourself because I can give you the answer and you'll be more effective and you'll learn just as much.
1: Exactly. Or you delegate it to somebody who can answer the same question as you can. Yeah, that's... I I tend to do the same thing.
0: Oh, awesome. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's it's so important to get someone up to speed real quick uh, and be effective in their own way, right?
1: Yeah, because you have... I mean, what you see is that, like, not junior, but reasonably inexperienced people join a company... And they're afraid to ask the architect or something like that, yeah. you know, or the, oh, that's the architect.
0: Yeah. but The, the whole, continuous improvement. Yeah. Well,
1: <laughs> I mean, if you work long enough with me, then you see also the other side of that. But yeah. in reality, I mean, people are maybe afraid to ask you questions. Yeah. And the first thing I, I tell them, like, you know, always, you can always ping me on Slack or teams or whatever, approach me. Uh, I might be busy at some point, but I might also decide to, you know, forward you to somebody who can answer the same question just as well yeah. as I can. So that's totally fine because people are looking for a way in. Yeah. Otherwise they start drowning in the company. Like, where do I find this information? Uh, if you use SharePoint, you won't be able to find anything because it's just you know, it's a void. Rabbit hole. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, so you need to be reachable.
0: Yeah. I try to be. I me try too. to be. Me too. I always say, call me because uh, that's the, the fastest way of communicating me. Yeah. Um, and I will call you back or I'll answer. Uh, but I'll definitely get back to you. That's the, the most important I part. I try
1: to do the exact same thing. Yeah, I mean, yeah. it's... it's I, I'm it's just weird. thinking in the back of my mind if the people that I work with on day-to-day basis actually agree with that. If it's me being naive or... but yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I should know by now, I yeah, would say.
0: Yeah, right. Yeah, cool. I mean, I, I've had those same thoughts, which is pretty pretty funny, I guess, in a way, because I always say that. I say, call me. Uh, but may, some people might say, well, Patrick texts a lot more than, uh, than he actually makes out to be. I hope it's not the truth uh well you
1: try to do your best right right yeah. it's the intent the intent that, that's important here yeah, yeah. for sure
0: cool. yeah uh today i i really wanted to talk to you about what is quality in uh in software development right a lot of people throw out the term like i want uh my stuff up to quality standards quality here quality there i have kind of a definition in my head but it's so abstract and i thought you might have a, a very valid opinion I definitely have an opinion about that. Whether <laughs> it's valid, it's uh, to be debated. I'll, we'll decide. But
1: yeah, it's it's indeed. I, you, you, if you talk to with teams and POs, product owners and managers, yeah, you're right. Everybody has a different definition, and also they mean a different thing. I mean, if you talk to a product owner, or your manager, or a client, when they talk about quality, they most of the time. Talk about the observable things of a system. Yeah. So, which could be the UI experience, the intuitivity, uh, maybe the performance, the responsiveness, that kind of stuff. But and maybe they also, you know, when you talk about bugs, that's obviously always associated with quality. Yeah. But uh, when I talk about quality, uh, I typically try to think about the internals of what you're building as a software developer. Yeah. And to make the distinction. I don't know if I actually came up with this uh, by myself or I, I heard it at some conference. I don't remember exactly. Yeah. I like to give credits that deserve it. Um, but I make a distinction between internal and external quality. Yeah. So external quality is what I just mentioned, the observable behavior. Internal quality says something about the maintainability, which by itself is also an abstract term. Yeah. But maintainability, testability, discoverability, um, uh, traceability and a couple of other entities, uh, which I forget for now, forgot for now, but those thing, things say something about the ability for a developer to first of all understand where something is solved, so you know um, do you actually know which which repository which part of the repository uh, which part of which folder which module yeah this is supposed to be solved yeah that's one aspect of it then you probably want to look at the unit test or the automated test understand, okay, what is this thing supposed to do? Um So the tests for me are almost like, I mean, that's the promise of test-driven development. It's your documentation. For me it is, yeah because I look at the test and try to understand, and that by the way, that all depends on how functional the test is. Exactly. I know a lot of developers that love to create really technical cryptic names. I care because I first want to understand, okay, all these test scenarios that I can see in my IDE, and I actually look at the list, okay, this is kind of the behavior. And then I look at the test itself. Is it actually doing what I was expecting it to do and how is it doing it? Yeah. And then only then I start to understand, okay, this is the module that's responsible for something. This is what the API looks like. This is the kind of the semantics of that component. And then I go into the implementation. So then I can actually look at the name of a method. Yeah. And you can see me, I'm looking a little bit in the corner by, because I have this mental model. That yeah. I'm a visual person. It feels like that. Yeah, yeah. And and then I look at the the name of the class, the name of the method, or if it's Java, TypeScript, the function or something like that, um, function component, and try to understand, okay, what does that do? Yeah. Is that actually, does it make sense? Do I understand the responsibility of that thing in the broader picture? Exactly. So not, it shouldn't be called a manager because that doesn't say anything, but the name should be important. And then I look at the implementation to understand, okay, how does it do it? Yeah. I think there's then one thing missing is why. Exactly. And a lot of developers think that the code is the documentation. I disagree, Mm -hmm. strongly disagree with that. Yeah. The code tells you what it does right now. Exactly. And if you use good naming, then at least you can understand what it's supposed to do, hopefully. Yeah. And if it's not clear, then by all means use documentation, I, I use inline comments. Like some people say code comments, no, you shouldn't <laughs> use that. It's not a museum. Yeah, I've no, that. that's complete. I don't know if I can say that, but that's uh, BS. Ah. Because in the end, there's no single rule that's applicable to every situation. Yeah. If you cannot actually express your intent in the code uh, sufficiently enough, put some comments on it yeah. to explain it to the next person. Yeah. But it doesn't answer the why. Exactly. That's where source control comes in. So okay. I also care about a clean source control history. I want to be able to go to GitHub or uh, got to help me uh, Team Foundation Server or uh, Azure <laughs> DevOps. Yeah, <laughs> and I want to be able to see like, okay, why was this line changed? And then click on the pull request and understand from from the description of the pull request and the title. Yeah, why was this needed in the first place?
0: All the context.
1: The context of it. Yeah. And again, that's also something that's not easily solved by everybody because I see a lot of pull requests that have a lot of mixed things. So there's lines of code changes that really don't have anything to do with the purpose of the pull request if I look at the title. But it's like unrelated refactoring. Yeah. So for me, and I'm pretty um, adamant or maybe a bit rigid in that, Yeah. Uh, I try to also separate the changes. So if I have a pull request with some refactoring, I put it in a separate commit because I know... I mean, 25 years of experience, I've looked at a lot of code bases. I want to be able to go back in time and understand why was that changed? Because I've seen people go, come and go. Yeah. And at some point, you lose the capability of talk to the person to provide background. And actually, to be fair, after six months, they don't know out of themselves.
0: Exactly. And yeah. then
1: you want to go back into the source control. So that's all part of internal quality.
0: Yeah, it's, it's a lot. And I think it's, it's overlooked. I mean, even the fact, the last one, the why and the context it, it's so important in how things change right because the thing you'll see live is the assumption of the dev team yeah right? they they get some requirements they make some assumptions uh, and it's either truthfully uh, rightfully so the way it is uh, or it might be incorrect yeah. but that context that why is is very important yeah. and it's still as important uh, months down the line
1: and it's surprising how many software developers don't care about this they yeah. just don't see the value of that yeah and it's it's particularly visible in the front-end community where, uh, excuse me for saying, but it seems to be they're a lot less mature than the back-end community. Okay. I, I, I run into a lot of JavaScript developers that just don't get that yet. They don't care about this stuff. You know, they don't. I had a big discussion with a guy about the using the explicit type in TypeScript. Yeah. And they said, like, yeah, but if it's wrong, compiler will complain at some point. He said, yes, it will complain but not at the point where you made the code changes. It will complain maybe a couple of, you know...
0: Yeah, in the future.
1: Or or in a completely different part of the code base because it all, all the type inference leaks through the code base. Yeah, you can't see that. I'm using my fingers now <laughs> to, to sketch <laughs> yeah. a picture, but... And and these things. I mean, I had a similar discussion. I don't know which which programming language is your main language. It's Go right now. Go. Okay, I have no experience with that. (laughs) But in C sharp, you have um, you can define types either using explicit type like int or string or something. We can also say far. Yeah. And means variable. Yes. Well, it basically means the compiler will infer it for you. It's still completely safe runtime compile time time. Yeah. But you lose information. And some people will then say but that information is not important. And they're quite often right. Unfortunately, now you have camps. You have people that say, no, you should always use an explicit type because every relationship, eh, I mean, maybe you remember UML diagrams. If you draw an error between two, class, uh, two, between two classes, you typically have uh, the role that the, 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 the relationship um, represents yeah. and the, the type of the class. These are two attributes. I mean, if you have a string, doesn't say anything. Yeah. But if it says string ISBN number, then you know it's an ISBN number and it's, it's of type string. And some people say, but that's not really invalid, uh, relevant. If it's an ISBN number, who cares? You're right. Quite often you're right. And I'm saying it depends on the particular case where it's perfectly fine to use FAR because you're not losing anything. It, yeah. it doesn't create confusion. Um, but in other cases, you do.
0: Yeah, exactly. And those cases probably matter more. Exactly. It's yeah. all
1: the little things that... Sometimes it matters. Yeah. And that's the problem with almost, I don't know how we got there, but <laughs> almost every principle or profession, if you look at solid, the solid principles, if you look at clean coat, um, uh, what else? Dry, yagni uh, kiss, eh? keep it simple, stupid. Um, all those principles, people tend to be dogmatic about it. Yeah, Either you find people that are extremely... On one side, like you need to apply dry. You need to apply solid. We need that abstraction. Every class needs to have an interface so I can mock it using a mocking library. Yeah. You know, and you have people on the other side saying, no, nah, you don't need that. I try to be, I hope I am, again, like <laughs> be naive, uh, to be in the middle there. Yeah. If it makes sense, apply it. If it doesn't make sense, don't apply it. There's yeah. no single rule that always that's always applicable. Think of the people that come after you.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think people are with you on that, right? The answer is it always depends. Uh, and you know the truth as it is now. Uh, and you try and, and sort out things for the future, right? But you need to make your decisions accordingly and you still need to be practical at some point. It's always weighing out pros and cons.
1: It is. It is always a trade-off. Yeah. I do see some patterns. Like you have, you have people that are really good at industrializing software, you know, making it maintainable for the future. And you have people that are really good at innovation. Yeah. I tend to see. I mean, I don't know if there's people that can do both. They can really, you know, change the hat. I'm I'm trying to. Yeah, no hat <laughs> is global. <laughs> yes, and um, I also see that people that tend to be more on the innovative side, they tend to not care so much about all this. Yeah, because their main job is typically, and not, sometimes not really explicit. It's just the way they work. Is they're really good at you know coming up with new ideas, out of the box, wild solutions. But by the time that's done, they move out. They move to the next job. Yeah. So they never have to maintain their own thing.
0: Yeah, exactly.
1: I'm not that good at innovation. I mean, I I, I know that I'm always up to date what's going on in our profession, but I, I tend to look for solutions that fit this the organization. Yeah. So if you really want to have like a completely new, you know, uh, disruptive way of looking at it, I tend to restrain myself. Like, okay, what does this company can do? What do what kind of capacity do they have? What people do they have? What's the install base? That kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, which means I care more about, you know, maintaining this for a long term. Yeah. And that can also sometimes create conflict, friction between those two camps.
0: Exactly. Because uh, look, the more you look into the future, the longer you I think, your decisions take uh, and the more robust initially you want to build. Because it's, it's layer after layer, right? If your foundation uh, is kind of messy, then the next layer will also be messy and we'll take that with it.
1: But some people tell me or say that if you build your code bases from, let's say, building blocks or boundaries, yeah, then ideally you should be able to replace the internals of every little building block in your code base. Like if you if you compose your solution from little modules, very right. small modules, uh, you can even say class classes a module. Sure. If you keep your contracts intact and really well defined, then anybody can replace the the, the internals of it, and then it doesn't matter. Because they say that you you should always be able to rewrite it at any point in time. Yeah. I don't get that.
0: It's I, It's not that black and white.
1: That's the thing. I mean, that assumes that the purpose of a particular class is rock solid, like yeah. crystal clear. It assumes that the contracts between your classes are well-defined. Yeah. But in reality, neither is true. None of them. I mean... People just produce code and if you look at the same code six months later, you probably think like mm, I should have used a better name, or mm, maybe I put too much responsibility in there. Yeah. And you have also junior developers that, you know, just try to find make it work and put more stuff in that code base yeah. without really thinking about does that actually violate the the responsibility of that 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 piece of code? Yeah. But in reality, I mean, requirements change. Code changes. You want new functionality. Yeah. And that means that even the interactions with all the modules will change over time. Exactly, yeah. and then it doesn't work. So for me, it doesn't work. Yeah, I don't sense. see it working. I, I have never seen it working. I just don't buy it.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's that maybe sense. my problem. But I don't buy it. I mean, you're a guy that looks far into the future, right? And it might be variable. It might be three months down the line or a year down the line. Depends on the context. Uh, but you do keep that in mind, which means the decisions you make currently. Uh, I mean, it affects those, right? In a, to a certain extent, because
1: there's a risk if you look too far in the future. Yeah, I mean um, uh, terms like Yagni and kiss, they didn't came from nothing. It's that people also tend to use those same principles as solid and design patterns to over-engineer for the future because they expect something to change. Yeah, I have tried that in the past. I've learned that this creates way mo- too much complexity. Too many layers of extraction. Yeah. Too many um, uh, dependencies. Um, so I started. I, I stopped doing that. So these days, I try to be a bit more pragmatic. You could say pragmatic. Some people say it's just naive, or you know, not really future proof. Sure. But I, I don't. I don't want to pretend I know the future. Yeah. I definitely know that product owners and you know product managers and those kind of people know the future. Yeah. They don't. So I try to keep it a bit more simple. Less abstractions. Uh, so I try to organize all my code around boundaries like functional boundaries which is also my unit for testing it is internally I try to keep things consistent but you know don't repeat yourself dry I don't apply it outside the boundaries to avoid too much coupling which is usually what happens if you apply these principles too dogmatically exactly so I'm trying to stay away from too much abstraction or too much generic code because in the end, I, I think I learned this from an article that Jeremy D. Miller. He wrote um, a couple of libraries in a .NET space. He wrote something like in 2008, um, and he said like, the big problem with generic solutions is that they make assumptions about what the future will look like and try to predict what kind of flexibility you need. Yeah. The problem is by the time that somebody else needs to wants to use that flexibility, the first thing he needs to understand, what was the thought process by uh, behind this abstraction? Yeah, and that's very hard because it's already hard to understand a piece of code and understand. I mean, if the code is well written, well documented, has proper naming, then at least you know what its purpose is, how it works. Yeah, but if it's generic, you also need to understand. Okay, so what's the what's the extension point here? What's the hook exactly. that I'm supposed to use? And quite often, this is not very clear. Yeah, you see that also with frameworks. Like it's very hard to understand what happens under the hood. And then if you have that abstraction there, you spend more time trying to understand, okay, how was I supposed to hook into this generic extension point? Exactly. Versus, okay, now I understand what it does, I'm going to change it to make it work like I want to do. Yeah. And that is, I think, the the, 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 the fundamental thing behind Yagni, at least in my opinion.
0: Yeah. Well, what is Yagni? Can you lay it out? Uh, you it. ain't
1: gonna need it.
0: You ain't gonna need it, exactly. Yeah, it's yeah. probably
1: an American, American phrase something. <laughs>
0: I mean, all those, all those patterns, right They're they're from kind of outside in, uh, we see a trend in software development and, and therefore it's a pattern, right? But it doesn't apply to everyone. That's the other way around. So you see what happens, therefore you have a pattern, but that doesn't mean that pattern applies to you. It, it applies to those people at that time.
1: In that context. Exactly. And that's the thing. Patterns and principles apply to a particular context where they were extracted from. Yeah. And that's the problem. Like we we just talked about yakni, I've also see I also see a lot of developers that use Yagni as an excuse to just make it work.
0: Yeah, exactly. And
1: that's the other that's the flip side of the coin. Yakni on itself is a good principle, but it's more to remind yourself of don't make it too don't over engineer. Exactly. Don't add more complexity that you need at this point in time. Yeah. Which doesn't mean you need to you don't need to make it maintainable. It just means you don't need that extra abstraction. You don't need to add an, an additional interface so that you can mock uh, like multiple levels of mocking. That's not what we mean with that. Yeah, exactly. We mean that you get at the right level of complexity, but still make it maintainable, self, you know, the intention should be clear, well, uh, well described, self-describing, uh, document if that needs to be, uh, for what you need right now. Nothing more. Yeah. And yeah, again, people misinterpret that. <laughs> or they interpret in the way that fits their thing. I mean, in the end, yeah. everybody's trying to do the best way
0: everyone's human right and they all have their own interpretation Uh, i mean i can read about a pattern and interpret it completely a different way than you would uh, because everyone makes their own uh, makes their own choices a a set of patterns is never going to make you successful it's it's how you apply it and how you keep in mind of them that they exist Uh, so it's still how you apply yourself and it's funny because um
1: i attended a presentation at domain driven design europe yeah and um i forget the name um there's a Belgium speaker who's also the organizer, um, uh, Matthias Farah, Sorry, yeah. sorry, Matthias. Um, <laughs> he actually had a presentation about design heuristics. Yeah, and he said like a lot of things that you do, you know, a lot of the. Because I had a discussion at some point, like I make a lot of decisions based on gut feeling. Yeah and i always try to understand like where is this coming from because less experienced developers don't get that they want to have rules they say if this then we use this pattern yeah if then then we use this principle exactly for me it's more fluid i i i, I try to apply all the little things unconsciously all the things i learned in my career and try to understand what fits in this particular situation yeah and he had a really great presentation explaining like why is this wh- what does that actually mean what is it what you're doing and he called them design heuristics, okay so principles, practices and patterns that um that will give you a hint or give you move you in the right direction, but don't guarantee any success, yeah, so it's not like if I apply this pattern, I solve a particular problem, no, this pattern has a spe- tries to spe- solve a specific problem in a specific context, has pros and cons, you know it's a trade off yeah, and you may try to apply it and it will bring you maybe further. But one of the things he tried to do or tried to teach us also tried to think about the opposite. If you don't do it, what's the consequence of that? Exactly. And I started a little bit, Like it still hasn't really sunk in in my, my mind, but I, I, I try to apply those principles more as heuristics now. Yeah, I mean, it's, that makes sense, I th- think. Yeah, it doesn't guarantee anything, but it may take you a little bit, a step further to the direction that you want to take.
0: Yeah, and also ask that question, like how, how could it go wrong if we do apply this? Uh, if it's in a lot of ways, in a lot of ways you don't even foresee, just maybe try it out and see if it works or not. Yep. And if it doesn't work, then move on to the next one. There's there's a lot of things out there.
1: It's also not for nothing that the original authors of um, the design patterns book, The Gang of Four, yeah, uh, like 10 years later said, like, we should have never called it like that. We should have called it like refactoring towards design patterns. Exactly. Because, yeah, essentially what they're saying is that these patterns are just giving names to common solutions. Yeah. If I tell you an, 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 an experienced developer, this is a factory or this is a singleton, then most people know what kind of behavior to expect. Yeah. It doesn't mean that, um, it, that they have to use certain names, but they have to say, this is strategy implementation. And everybody knows what it means. At yeah. least I, I hope so. So it's more a communication tool. Yeah. And refactoring towards that means that you're refactoring your current code base towards well-defined structures so, p- so that you can talk about it. Yeah, you can explain complex solutions by saying, you know, this is an adapter. Um, this one is the bridge. And we have a strategy. So most people don't even know what to expect. A strategy apparently there's a class with a, a context and that kind of stuff doesn't sure. really matter. Yeah, it's it's the communication part that you do.
0: Yeah, that shared language. Yes, that makes it so we it's, can actually yes, communicate. Yes,
1: exactly. It's almost like ubiquitous language, but then for software
0: developers. Yeah, yeah. I love that your your initial thought of internal quality as you coined it. Um, is looking at the, the what, the why, and the how. Uh, and I love that the what comes from the tests, right? Because they, they usually describe at what it does, uh, not necessarily why, and give you the context. And how it does is actually the, the job of the code uh, that's being tested, I guess. I've heard that before. Do you think that's a, that's a common train of thought to initially look at the tests to be like, what's going on? I mean,
1: that's the the, the, the whole premise of test-driven development. Yeah that you design your code by means of tests. and um, But the problem with that is, and I've experienced this myself as well, that you can do it wrong really quickly. In what way? In the way that if you want your test to describe behavior, yeah, you know, give you an indication how something is supposed to work, you need to be careful not to test too small. Uh-huh. And that's something I see a lot, especially with people that just started doing it, they, they followed the book. Um, a class can be a self-contained thing which solves a particular problem, yeah. and then it makes sense to have your tests around that, define that behavior. Huh? You you design this thing, but more often than I, I actually see that it's usually a group of classes what? or whatever types you use in your language together solve a particular problem, yeah. and the class itself or the classes or the part of that are just in like implementation details exactly and then I tend to test the whole unit as, a, as a, so I actually organize my code in functional folders literally like that and I use the functional folder as a kind of boundary of how I test because if you test too small and you discover over time that the responsibility of the class were were have been exceeded even yeah. though it was warranted you like to refactor that yeah that shouldn't change the tests exactly and if you need to rewrite your test every time you Change, you change your mind or you need to refactor your implementation, that's a smell. It's not a, it's not a guarantee. I'm not saying it's always wrong. Yeah. But I've, I've experienced myself that you end up with way too many tests that are really too small. So as soon as you your, your design evolves and you want to redefine the responsibilities, maybe you want to refactor towards design patterns, yeah. you're screwed because you have to rewrite your tests. Yeah. If you take a little bit of a bigger scope, not too big because I've seen that as well, and then it becomes very hard to understand why test fails because there's so much code behind that. Exactly. So I tried to find a balance in there. And yeah. by the way, you can, you can complement each other. So smaller tests are easier to understand, easier to maintain, as long as you don't make them too small. Yeah. But you can have bigger tests, end-to-end tests, API-level tests, component-level tests. They're all complementary it's not like you have to choose one over the other. They all add value.
0: Exactly, they're all layers of tests. Yes, and yes. And they'll all give you a different set of context. Exactly,
1: they yeah. increase your safety net. And uh, like in .NET, it's pretty easy these days to in a unit test load the entire application and simulate HTTP traffic without using network. Yeah, All aspects of HTTP, so all the headers and cachings and E Um, You can do that and it's very easy to do that, but there's a risk that these tasks end up becoming too big. Yeah. So if it fails, It can be anywhere. Yeah. And that's why I'm saying, don't do that as well, but also test at the unit. And again, the unit is not a class, unit is a functional boundary. Yeah. Because then most likely you also have unit tests failing on the smaller boundary so you know where it's coming from. It's just multiple level of tests on top of each other.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, what you said with the what and the how, um, if you change your how, which is how your code functions, and your what also fails now all of a sudden in the test, then you've tested too small, Right. Most because likely, yes. apparently you yeah. changed how it works. It should still have the same outcome in the what it does. Exactly. Uh, but somehow it, it fails. I, I wouldn't say that's a principle, but it's a heuristic. Exactly. I
1: mean, it doesn't always mean like it's, it's, it's wrong design that, that is behind that. Yeah. But it's most likely the case.
0: That's why um, you called it a smell.
1: Uh, yeah, it's a smell. Yeah. yeah, you could say it's a smell. Yeah. Exactly. True. And that's also, by the way, it's good that you mentioned that because you actually talk about the observable behavior of a unit. Yeah. And again a unit can be class, can be a couple of classes together, a module. Sure. If you focus if you test only touch the observable behavior, then it's also much less likely that they break if you start to reimplement something.
0: Exactly. Yeah.
1: I mean, people still do like backdoor testing, like they create an abstraction, like a repository abstraction and then mock it away, you know, fakes and mocks. Um I think like okay if you really have that layered architecture it's not really helping so layered architectures is for me like a smell these days uh, because it tries to put you in a position where your code has to be it cannot be self-contained it depends on too many other things yeah and then it becomes more harder to test that component you need to use mocks and maybe you use mocks of mocks of mocks. yeah i've seen that because people are too dogmatic about solid exactly um finding that that sweet spot that's the that's the the trick of course yeah
0: yeah yeah i mean the weight of that code would be too hefty which means you also need that same weight in testing it
1: yeah absolutely yeah Yeah.
0: i love that you you made the distinction between internal quality uh, and external quality but i think there's a there's a relation there right if your internal quality sucks you're going to notice it outside as well at some point
1: the problem with that statement is that it is not always true okay eventually this will be true. Yeah. But the amount of time that goes between, you know, internal quality sucks versus the external, external quality is going to suffer from that can be years. Yeah, for sure. That's the challenge. That's why a lot of non-developers don't get it. Yeah. Why, why, uh, a lot of managers don't get what technical depth is. Yeah. Why product owners favor a new functionality versus bringing down technical depth. And again, technical depth ca- can also be used by developers. I see that as well to re-architect things because they don't like it or they want to use a new tool.
0: Yeah, it's but not the same.
1: It's not the same. But again, this is, again, a topic that is very sensitive. There's a there's a particular, yeah. Again, you have to find a sweet spot here. Yeah. But, um External quality is usually well protected by product owners and quality insurance. Yeah. Because yeah, if, if the clients are suffering from it directly, if the performance is not good enough, if the UI is not responsive enough, enough uh, if your progressive web app application doesn't scale really well in different form factors, yeah. that's really visible. And that will be a bug on your backlog and nobody will debate whether it needs to be fi- fixed. Exactly but if you continuously run into internal constructs like you the code is not clear the responsibilities have been screwed up people didn't really understand what they were what they were doing Uh, i mean like union junior developer just trying to make it work yeah they usually don't have the big picture and if the code is not really doesn't have a screaming architecture where you immediately see like hey i'm in this module i shouldn't actually be solving this problem here yeah people will just try to fix that problem or implement a feature and if you do that too long, you end up with really an obfuscated code base. Exactly. Where the original architecture is not visible anymore. Yeah. And trying to explain that, I mean, I experienced this as well, that where the tech lead had a good point. The code was really bad and it was really difficult to make changes. But because this developer had the tendency to over-engineer solid, you know, all this kind of stuff, too many abstractions, uh, faking all over the place, the PO didn't trust that. Because he, although he understood that bringing down this technical debt was important, yeah. he was afraid that it ended up becoming an uh, like an, an never ending refactoring attempt. Yeah, because there's a big difference right, between refactoring and redesigning. Exactly. And a lot of developers, when they talk about refactoring, they're actually redesigning.
0: Yeah, yeah. I'm, it's it's hard. Uh, I'm wondering where the responsibility lies, right, to keep that internal quality up to par, because a lot of a lot of devs fight for it, right? They say. This is not going to work this is not maintainable we will uh feel this in the external quality at some point down the line but it's so abstract it's so hard to communicate that and also to to describe in words where it went wrong right if you put an architecture in place it's like a hotel uh, and someone can say well you need to paint that room Uh, and a junior dev goes to paint a room but he's in the wrong room right the room's painted still does what it needs to but it's the wrong room right and layer after layer after layer You will notice that you have rooms which which don't make any sense, have all kinds of different colors, uh, and that's what you need to communicate.
1: Yeah, I I think I read it somewhere. I'm not sure where, but there was the analogy of like restructuring in your house, rebuilding. Yeah. And you discover that there's a hole in the wall somewhere, or there's something really bad. And what you can do, you can you sometimes you can just put some plaster on top of it, and nobody will see it.
0: Yeah, like a poster.
1: Yeah, poster. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Or maybe you put a little wall in front of it yeah. and nobody knows that. But by then by the time you start to, like years later, you forget about that. Or maybe the next owner comes in. Eh? It's like the next developer comes in yeah. and this person needs to predict like how, how much work is it. So he's going to look at the code and, you know, abstractions and functionality. But then he starts coding and then he runs in there. It. It's the equivalent of, okay, now I'm going to you remove the plaster. Oh, crap there's an old pipeline there of the an old pipe like and we need to replace it. I exactly. didn't know yeah. yeah, because the previous owner, it worked. Yeah. We had water in the house. Exactly. It's, it's It doesn't really work 100% but it's pretty close to explain that but it's still, it's too abstract. Yeah. It's too abstract. Exactly. And then it becomes, yeah, it becomes, it, it needs to be trusting. Yeah. So your PO needs to trust the developers or the tech lead but it means the tech lead has responsibility of controlling the amount of refactoring you do because yeah, I know how it works. I mean, I maintain an open source project for the last ten years. Every time I look at it, I often use it in my workshops as examples, and then I realize, crap, this is actually too complicated. Or the (laughs) naming—I should refactor that. Yeah. And then I start refactoring it, and I try to keep my commits clean, you know. But then I discover something new, and it's so difficult to not end up in that rabbit hole where you just make the thing bigger. Oh, I need to. Oh, I can also include this one because maybe it's going to be more difficult in the future. This is something you need to stop. You need to control that. Yeah. And I think, again, juristic, if you, if you keep it under control and you can show to your PO that you can do small incremental refactoring without blowing up the scope or completely screwing up the planning in your sprint planning, yeah. you increase the trust. Yeah. And it
0: should be balanced. Exactly. But it's hard. And trust, trust is such a, such an interesting thing. Uh, I talked to Jethro about it, and my, uh, my buddy I, I had on earlier, actually. Um, and we said, initially, when you come in, you have probably some trust, right? Depends on what, what your predecessors did. But you always have an initial trust. But it goes away so quickly. Yes. And you need to have such incremental steps to win it back. Uh, and it's very hard. It's very hard to gain that trust back once it's already gone. Yeah, if true. you come in and there is no trust, man, that's a red flag. Because you don't want to be in that situation.
1: And it's, I've experienced this many times. And I also I can blame myself for losing trust in other people. Because I see they don't get it yet. And this is the part I have never, I've not been able to solve. Like, what do you do if somebody doesn't really get it yet? Yeah, I mean, do you? I mean, do you just let them try and, and fail themselves? That's what people say you should. But in the end, I feel like, but it's just a shame because we're going to create a lot of crap now, which I know we're going to have to redesign later on. Yeah, just because somebody should learn. And this is always a struggle. Like, I, I like to, and it all depends on this, in the context. But I like to. Depending on the maturity of somebody, if I understand, like talking with somebody, like he understands or she or whatever uh, understands the the scales, the the, the black and white that is never black and white. Yeah, that's a good signal because then I understand. Okay, so he understands that everything is a trade-off. Is not following something just because it's written in the book. Yeah, he thinks for himself. Um, that's a good sign. Doesn't always mean it's easy because he may have a different opinion than I have. Yeah, which usually is fine. Um. But you cannot, yeah, sometimes you have to overrule it. Exactly. So I, I like to think, and I don't want to talk about juniors, because it sounds so, <laughs> so, so negative or so yeah. it has a negative connotation. But if somebody just comes from school, they don't have the experience yet. I mean, yeah. they're very eager. They want to try things and build things. And, and then they suddenly are told by the tech lead, yeah, but you know, this code needs to be smaller, refactored. Quite often, they don't even know how to do that. Yeah, you know big methods, refactoring. They just select a bit of code, make a new method out of it, eh? extract method, yeah. refactoring path. That's not the solution. Exactly. And clean code is really good at that. Clean code tries to teach you that by having all your code in a method on the same abstraction level, yeah. you, you're going to capture the intent of that thing. But people don't get it. And what happens then is that people blindly apply and then we go about dogma- dogmatism again, <laughs> apply this principle, just extract method until I have all these small methods. Yeah. But then they go too far, and you end up with methods that do one thing. Yeah. Of course. So it's single responsibility. But the name just repeats what literally what the code element is doing. You've overdone it.
0: Exactly. Yeah. And
1: when that happens a lot, people say, oh, but solid, you shouldn't do solid. Solid sucks. Yeah.
0: You know, we've seen it happen.
1: And then people start doing <laughs> presentations on YouTube. Yeah, exactly. Why the dark side of Solid? Or why you should not do Solid? And people start to, you know, quote those uh, those links like, "Hey, look at this, Dennis. Solid is really bad. Look at people saying." And then you lo- watch the video, and you can already see that this person had a bad experience because it was applied differently or incorrectly. Yeah. And that's with everything. I mean, in my workshop, I often phrase the Gardner hype cycle. Okay. And uh, I don't know if you know it, but it usually starts with. Um, you know, in, uh, in, um, a trigger for something new, yeah. a new framework, a new pattern, new principle. Hype. A hype, yeah. exactly. <laughs> well, I mean, maybe it's not tr- they don't see it as a, as a hype, but something yeah. new. And then people start to apply it and they get very enthusiastic about it. I remember when I was introduced with mocking libraries, sounded really cool. Now I can finally mock all the uh, ugliness away. And people become very enthusiastic and you know what happens? They write a blog post about it. Yeah. Maybe they create a YouTube movie, uh, <laughs> video or they go to a conference and talk about how awesome you know mocking libraries are. I did it myself, by the way. Nice. But then they start to see the the flip side of the coin, the dark side. And it's like, oh, we should never do this. TDD sucks because you end up with all these small tests and every time... I designed, yes, you have to rewrite it. And they become negative about it. Yeah. Solid TDD, you'll find if you go on YouTube or look for articles, there's plenty of them. They start writing articles about how bad TDD is, how bad solid is. Yeah, exactly. You know, it's the, what they call, I think the throw of a disillusionment. They're so negative. they like, oh, I thought this was the next best thing and it's not. Yeah. And then they, at some point they realize, yeah, but you know what? If you apply it correctly, yeah. again, correctly is a bit um, subjective. But if you find the sweet spot when something works, eh, the context that you talk about, then you become successful. I think it's called the plateau of productivity. Okay. And I think with everything you learn, you go through that cycle.
0: I mean, I think so. I think so. I I don't think it's a a bad thing to make mistakes and to try things out, right? You need to experience some things, uh, but it's it's also smart to listen to people around you that said, well... I don't think you're applying it correctly because these are actually the principles. Uh, Don't go too far on the scale and and go on one side. Uh, Because, I mean, if it's like a zigzag, you'll be too much zag versus zig. I don't know if that's a good translation from Dutch to English. No, but I I get what you
1: you mean. Yeah. And that is true indeed. And that's the hard part of our job, of course. Exactly. Because if I look back at my own self like 20 years ago… Yeah. I probably wouldn't listen to a senior developer if he <laughs> says something because I want to figure it, figure it out myself. Exactly. But now I hate it because I see young people doing the same thing. And I thought, yeah. dude, man, if, if, if I were you, I would have listened to the experience here.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's the same thing with asking a question, right? I, I can give you the answer. I'll, I'll get you up to speed. Uh, and You can continue. Some people just want to dive into that rabbit hole and figure it out themselves. Um, and I think you need to find a balance there in still being productive, uh, learning on your own accord, but also listening to the people around you, and not make those same mistakes over and over and over again down the line.
1: Yeah, and that's the thing, eh? If you if you're in the profession long enough, you st- you see the you see a pattern. You see people making the same mistakes over and over again. Yeah. Or or um, marketing something new as oh this is going to solve all your problems, but you can already see like the pattern behind that. And and sometimes, by the way, that's also. Um, not a good thing because you may think because of your experience that something is, it's the same as the last one. Yeah, We've seen this before. Sometimes there's really something disruptive. I think Git is a nice example. It's a disruptive technology that is not just a source control system. It changes the way people can cooperate. Exactly. Especially if you use GitHub. I mean, I've, I've been on CodePlex in the past. Okay. Um, uh, TFS with my open source projects. Only when I start adopting GitHub uh, pull requests and forks and that kind of concepts—it started to fly. Yeah, people could contribute very easily. And now I see the same things we've been applying that at, at client projects uh, for the last couple of years. Well, last seven, six, seven, uh, seven, eight years. Yeah, and you can see the same thing happening. People can contribute to each other. You know, they they collaborate because the tooling enables them in a very fluent and very natural way. To contribute to code bases.
0: Yeah, it's, it's just an, such a nice layer of context you can give. Uh, and I, I know it's important, but I love how you laid it out that you can actually make it even more important if you, if you use it to its fullest extent.
1: And even that topic by itself is worth like debates because I recently saw a lot of articles about uh, code reviews and yeah. pull request reviews and it sucks and it doesn't add value. And I think it, it's it's also really tied to the rest. I mean, what I see is if you produce a pull request with hundreds of files, yeah, without proper separation of changes, then I'm then the entire pull request review is completely wasteless. Exactly, because nobody is going to review these hundred lines very thoroughly. Yeah. However, if those hundred files consist of a couple of functional changes plus maybe you rename something which affects a lot of files, and you manage to put it in a separate PR or a separate uh, commit. Yeah. It's much easier because I can in GitHub, for instance, you can review commit by commit. Yeah. I can look at the commit that actually changes, you know, the name, and look at the name or the name makes sense. You know, next. Yeah. I don't. I don't even have to look at fifty uh, of maybe seventy-five percent of the files in that pull request. Exactly. So, delivering this high-quality pull request with well-defined code, well-documented code, uh, nicely separated the, the the functional changes from the refactorings, also improves the whole review cycle as well.
0: Yeah. And the quality. And the quality, obviously,
1: yeah. because, yeah, if you don't review, and some people say, yeah, but we do pair programming. I don't think anybody is doing pair programming all day, and they shouldn't. Um, and I also, I've, I've tried it myself many times, uh, also observed teams. Pair programming is a good thing, by the way. Yeah. But not all day. You should yeah. probably do it with specific elements, but nobody is going to sit four hours in a row together to build new code. They do it when they are solving a problem. Yeah. Because then you have to combine minds. But usually what happens if people start pair programming, one is coding and the other one is just sitting on the phone. Yeah. And then, it, then it's
0: not as effective.
1: Ex- yeah. It could be in some way it can be effective Yeah, because the theory is that you're going to challenge each other. But I've, I've not seen that happen a lot. Okay. In the end, I see the people ending up in the same tunnel vision and you really need um, somebody else really looking at it from a different perspective.
0: Yeah. I, I love that you say, well, it's, it depends on how you apply it, right? I've had a guy on, and he was super enthusiastic about pair programming but he always laid out that when it was a complex problem then they would pair up on that or even mob up on that and they would get the value because of the complexity right if you're doing some mundane thing it needs to be done uh i can watch you but i don't think it's going to be effective agreed yeah agreed.
1: what is effective i think is um swarming okay changes so um if, if you if we have to change a lot of things like implement some uh, like relatively complex thing What I I try to do with the teams is have them break it down into chunks of work that we can work on in parallel. Because again, as I said, pair programming can be effective, but it also needs to fit your character. Exactly. I mean, I'm not a person to sit together with somebody else because my brain works differently. uh, I'm just antisocial. I don't know, maybe that's the thing. But the point is that um, often it's much better to try to break it down so you can work together on different parts and then just commit to the same branch. Yeah. You know, so that you just add bits and pieces.
0: Exactly, but it
1: requires a bit of structure. Sometimes it works by, like, say, let's say you want to rebuild something, define the boundaries of what you want to rebuild. Yeah. Maybe an empty class with some, you know, methods that make sense. Commit that to your branch, and then start to implement the implementation, so that the rest of the team or the rest of the people that you swarm with can already implement some logic that depends on that class, even though there's no logic in there. Yeah. So then you. It's almost like drawing the drawing a picture by drawing the outline yeah. and then gradually starting to fill in the blanks in that picture. Exactly. This is something I see, saw working really well. Also works really well for me, because that means, yeah, you can easily, and it also works really well with reviews, because yeah. you may not have to do a thorough review from the start, but every time you do a pull request on the shared branch, you can just, you know, figure out or do a little bit of a check like, okay, does that actually mean we're filling up the blanks in this outline correctly? Yeah. Are we going in the right direction? Yes, merch, Because we can do the real uh, review much later. Exactly. But it's all about getting a, fee- it's now a fast feedback lifecycle yeah. where people get early feedback like, are we actually moving in the right direction? Yeah. Not always possible, not always successful, but I've seen it be more successful than pair programming.
0: Yeah. I love that you said that in essence... It's about getting that feedback and getting it fast, right? The faster, the better, because then you can still correct and be like, well, no, 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 no. You drew outside of the line here. Uh, we need to go back and make sure we're in inside of the line. It makes a lot of sense.
1: I hope so. And um, <laughs> but yeah, I, I'm also notorious or sometimes for doing really thorough reviews. Yeah, uh, I've been a bit more relaxed the last couple of years. But yeah. um, I mean, you, you don't really want to use a pull request to start, you know, uh, complaining about uh, layout and brackets. Yeah. Um, so one thing I try to apply, I think I read it somewhere is emojis and okay. pull request reviews to emphasize. There's a bunch of emojis. So we can probably share the link and maybe there's some show notes at the end. Sure. Uh, which emphasize like when I do pull request, like this is a suggestion. Yeah. You know, that could make it better. Hmm. Uh, this is actually nit- me nitpicking. Yeah. It's up to you. What you want to apply it? Like naming or, uh, layout rules or something like that. Um, this is something that's really wrong because it violates an agreement or a standard or some kind of rules we follow, or it's just wrong because there's a big issue there. Yeah. And then you have one for saying like, uh, I'm not sure, I think it might be wrong. So that let's at least discuss it face-to-face before you merge the changes. Yeah, And there's a couple of like a thumbs up, like, hey, this is actually nice. You don't want to use it too often. And yeah. a clown uh, to emphasize like, I know this is outside what you were doing. But if you touch this code, maybe you can also fix that. Yeah, that's one of the tricks I I try to use because it forces me to also think about okay, how important is this for me as yeah. a reviewer? Exactly. Um. So I, and and until of course people start to ignore all my suggestions, <laughs> at some point I would say no, and in GitHub if you do a pull request review, you can say something like comment changes, request change, or proof. Yeah. So if the majority is just suggestions and nitpicks. I would just approve it immediately and people can decide whether they want to do it or not. Exactly. But if there's a lot of questions like hmm, this might actually be wrong, then it becomes a, a, a comment. Yeah. So I don't approve it, don't reject it. So I, I have my way of also, I mean, make it very clear to the, sorry, to the review or to the author of the pull request, like what how we, important is it? Yeah. And force myself to also think about this upfront.
0: Yeah, your intent—like, what do you mean with exactly. this piece of text? Yes, uh, and I love that you use emojis to convey that. It's I, so I didn't simple. Can, Yeah, it's so simple, and it, it sounds—I mean, I think I might use that. I might steal that from you.
1: It's funny because there were some senior developers that were like, oh, but it's that's so childish. <laughs> I said, well, we don't need it. You can just type it out. Yes, we yeah. can type it out. But it's it, for me, it's a nice trick. Yeah, because it really forces me to consider the the severity of my, co- uh, my comment. There's another trick, by the way. I don't know if you have other topics, but um, <laughs> sometimes you work on the pull request and you, you, we talked about, you know, restraining or constraining the scope of the change, especially when you're factoring. Yeah. And quite often there's an article I read on InfoQ, I think it's called The Natural Cause of Refactoring, where you're changing some code and then you realize like, hmm, this code is weird. It's not, it's, it's, I don't know how to fix it and I don't want to spend time on it right now but something is wrong, this class has the wrong responsibility or this doesn't belong there, I use a smell comment. Okay. So it's literally slash less and C sharp comment, uh, sorry, sh- slash less smell. Yeah. Me explaining what's the smell, which is kind of a breadcrumb Okay. for me that maybe, or the next person that looks at that.
0: Yeah. To also find it.
1: And and may find it, I may actually be refactoring it and realize like, hey, I actually know what to fix that. Or we're going to fix it anyway. Yeah. The other one is refactor. Mm-hmm. So slash as refactor, where you're saying, I know how we should refactor this. Yeah. You know, I already know that this should be moved to this class, but I I want to keep my pull request to a minimum. Um, I leave a breadcrumb for my future self or my colleague that the next time I touch that, maybe I do have time to refactor that. Yeah. And that also works really well for me because yeah, you can put it in a bug or issue in the issue tracker system, but then it's disconnected from what are you actually looking at? Yeah. How are you going to describe a, a code smell in a JIRA ticket, exactly. it's not working. You need to keep it with the source, Yeah, you know? And that works really well for me, I have to say.
0: yeah, One of sense. the nicest tricks I've learned. Yeah, it, it sounds very interesting. Like all those, all those layers you've, you've laid out, they all sound so interesting to me and I could see how they could be effective, but it's, it's never something I would, I would think of myself. Me neither, it's, it's I very just interesting. read. Yeah, exactly. And that's yeah. what
1: I mean, continuous approval. I'm yeah. always trying to see, find new things to, to do the job better.
0: Yeah, that is really cool. Man, we really went down the, the quality rabbit hole. I think we can do a, a whole other show uh, about the different aspects of quality. Uh, but I think we'll, we'll leave it off here. I hope you cool. have fun.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, cool. It was great. Thank you for having me. Awesome. No problem. Ladies and
0: gentlemen, Dennis. Thank you very much. No problem.